going on in Paraguay, lots going on here in our own midst as well. And uh, I think it's interesting how churches have this ability to debate on a lot of different things, some topics of importance, sometimes not so important. Like we might have still have these lifelong uh, discussion of, of the style of worship music. I mean, do we do hymns? Do we do choruses? Are drums okay or not? I don't know. I'm, I'm glad we've decided on that one here at Stony Brook. We'll talk about alcohol. Like, is it okay to drink or not drink? Or how much is it okay to drink? I mean, Jesus did turn the water into wine after all, didn't he? And we'll talk about women in leadership. How involved should women be? Uh, what capacity can or should they serve in the church? Conversation that we still have and the EMC level. And Pepsi or Coke? Which one should we serve at the lunch after on the kickoff Sunday? Of which we, of course, have settled that debate. It's Pepsi all the time. Always. <laughs> what, did you buy Coke? Oh, no. Man, I really don't know the details of this lunch. Apparently, I'm just going home after. I don't know. Well, one example of a debate that you may have heard in churches, maybe it happens more in Bible school when I was a student, is the, the nature of salvation. Is, is salvation a, a specific moment or an event, or is it a process, even an ongoing process? And of course, there's advocates or examples for both sides. In fact, I was listening to the radio, uh, just on my way to work the other day, and, and singer Mac Powell has a song called 1991, and he declares in the chorus that his life changed forever on April 21st, 1991. That was the day, the moment that he was saved. He was truly treating salvation as, as an event in that case. And yet on the other hand, we have famous Christian author C.S. Lewis, who was for a lot of his adult life a devout atheist. And it took years for him to come around to believe the claims of Jesus. And even when he uh, stopped being an atheist, he, he first only was a theist. That happened in 1929, and it wasn't until two years after that that he became a Christian, fully believing and trusting in who Jesus said he was. And even when he became a Christian, he didn't know the exact moment it happened. He was walking towards the zoo with some friends, and this is what he says. When we set out, Lewis wrote, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and when we reached the zoo, I did. And so some point... In all of those years, something happened to him. Salvation was more of a process. And in the answer to this debate is both, of course. Sometimes we as churches are good at that, making things in tension when they ought not to be. God is constantly at work in our lives, and we would call that a process. And yet there are often specific moments or events that become milestones of the transformation that Jesus is doing within our hearts and lives. And perhaps there's no greater example of this than in the life of Saul. And today as we jump back into the book of Acts, we are going to see Saul's conversion. Now, who was Saul? Well, he's somebody that we encountered already as we studied the first half of this book. We first met Saul at the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen was someone who was involved with the church. He was a, a leader of the early church, and he was outspoken for his belief in Jesus. And this outspokenness led to him inciting a riot with the Jewish religious leaders and ultimately led to his stoning. And as Stephen's life was ebbing away, we see that Saul was standing there, and he was involved, and he was overseeing, and he approved of the execution of Stephen because he believed he was heretic. And as we jump into the beginning of Acts chapter 8, we see that this kind of whet the appetite for Saul. Just seeing one Christian 
was um, put to death was not enough for him. And so he went into the other houses of, of Christian leaders in Jerusalem and he, he found who the leaders were. He went into their homes and he bound them and he was, he was taking it upon himself to persecute those who followed Jesus, members of what the early church was known as, members of the way. This is what he was doing. And why would Saul do such a thing? Well, it wasn't necessarily because he was evil. It wasn't necessarily just because he was angry. Saul was instead a religious zealot. He was a trained Pharisee, Pharisee being a very well-known and influential religious order within Judaism. He was not only trained, he was trained under a very famous rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. And so he would have had some prestige as a student of Gamaliel. He would have had some influence and notoriety. In fact, he was also likely a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling Jewish council. Of course, they were not ruling as the government. All of this was under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. And yet at that time, Rome let the Jews have a lot of autonomy with their own religious law. And the Sanhedrin was that governing council that would oversee the living out of this religious law. And there are some, some points of evidence in the New Testament that, that Paul cast a vote against the Christians, how he oversaw Stephen's execution. We don't know for sure, but it was likely that he was a member of this ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And so he was a Pharisee of some renown and some authority. And he truly believed that Jewish Christians were heretics that needed to be put to rest. They needed to be eradicated. He didn't necessarily hate them as people, but he had grown up. He was steeped in this belief that there was one true living God, and he dismissed the claims that Jesus was either the Messiah or the Son of God, and he saw his role as guarding the truth, this truth that he had always been told was the case. And so he was a gatekeeper. He was a religious zealot. He was doing what he believed was right. It's easy to demonize Saul's behavior, and it was harsh, but it was also important to remember that he was doing so out of a misguided belief of what was actually true. Now, the crux of the matter for Saul and for all the other Jews and and Christians and the Gentile world, the crux of the matter was Jesus himself. Christians believe that he was the Messiah, the anointed one, and the Son of God, and he fulfilled all of that which Saul held to be true. Well, Saul would dismiss those claims. He was not the long-awaited Messiah. He certainly wasn't the Son of God. This is heresy. Therefore, Christians are heretics. And the only way to change Saul's mind would be through his heart. I mean, he was a student devoted to his religion. So there was going to be no uh, logic or reasoning or argument or, or head change that was going to turn his life around. For Saul, this needed to be much more personal, much deeper much more substantial. And that's exactly the way it happened. Not satisfied with persecuting the church in Jerusalem, Saul goes to the high priest, who would be Caiaphas, the same high priest that oversaw the trial of Jesus, and he requested letters of authority to go uh, to take to the synagogues in Damascus where he could persecute Christians there. Now, Damascus was a few hundred miles away in the neighboring Roman province of Syria, and it was part of a, of a group of cities called the Decapolis, and they were self-governing cities. So just as the Roman authorities allowed the Jews some autonomy in Israel and in Jerusalem, there was also some autonomy in the Decapolis as well, as long as no trouble was being made. But Damascus also had a large Jewish population. 
And interestingly enough, it was to that segment of the population that that was the only segment that Saul would have had any authority over. Again, he wasn't a Roman official, and so this was under Roman rule. Uh, It was an entirely different province than Judea. It was a self-governing city, and he had no clout or authority with the local officials. But he did have this ability as a high-ranking member of the Sanhedrin and with letters from the high priest to use that religious authority to drag Christians back from Damascus to Jerusalem to be put on trial and be put in prison. Saul's plan is to use this authority to continue his vendetta against the early church. And maybe in the back of his mind, maybe even he can incite a mob like with Stephen and put people to death. Could this be true? Saul is on a mission. And then he is on his way to Damascus. In fact, as we pick up our story in Acts 9, and you can put your uh, Bible open to that place there in Acts 9, they're almost to the edge of the city. They're not in the middle of the road to Damascus. They are almost at their destination. And this whole journey, by all accounts, has been pretty normal so far. They've just been cruising. They've been going to Damascus. And then this normal journey turns around in an instant, and it becomes anything but normal. As they are approaching the city, it says that a light from heaven shone around Saul. And I love that, but, it, but, but our English translation almost do, uh, doesn't do it justice because that, that word in the original language for Sean, it really means flashing like lightning. So it's not maybe this halo kind of aura. This is this power and majesty of lightning flashing from heaven so bright that, that Saul just has to fall to the ground. He is literally awestruck at what he is experiencing out of nowhere from heaven in that moment. And as Saul falls to the ground, he hears a voice saying to him in verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So not only does Saul have this incredible experience with holy light from heaven flashing around him, but he hears someone speak. And it's not just a voice. It's not just God from heaven. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. Now, his fellow uh, fellow travelers are confused. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. Uh, They can can hear the voice, but they can see no one. Uh, They can see that something is happening, but they cannot make sense of it. This is a personal conversation. This is Jesus showing himself, showing himself to be true, to be full of, of power and majesty. And he shows himself to be true to Saul and Saul alone. And so there is this moment of power and majesty, of personal conversation. And then when Saul gets back up off the ground, he's completely blind. He cannot see. And so his confused travelers, they take him by the hand, they lead him the rest of the way into the city of Damascus, where Saul is blind for three days, eating and drinking nothing. What has happened? How, much, uh, how many things would have to be going through his mind at this moment? Everything he thought was true, now he has evidence to the contrary. Well, as Saul is, is contemplating this, our scene of our story shifts to Ananias, a disciple of Jesus in Damascus. He would have been one of those prominent Christian leaders that Saul was on his way to take to prison. And God appears to Ananias in a vision. He says, Ananias. And Ananias said, here I am, Lord. 
And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So I love this. Now we have a second vision. Obviously, the first vision was given to Saul, a personal one of Jesus. And now in the city of Damascus, God goes to Ananias and gives him another vision. And we see a clear orchestrating of events. Should remind us of the story of Peter and Cornelius, where God also gave them separate visions to come together to prove to them beyond any shadow of a doubt that it was the Lord at work in this instance. Much the same thing is happening here. It is not just the Lord um, appearing to Saul. It's also the Lord appearing to Ananias. He is at work, and he has a job for Ananias to do. Well, while Ananias is at first open and obedient, when the Lord speaks to him, he says, Here I am, Lord, which is a great response. It shows humility. It shows listening. It shows this readiness to do what God wants, just like Samuel was told to reply that by, by Eli when God spoke to him. Here I am ready to do what you want me to do. That was the initial posture. And then, and then God says, okay, what I want you to do, Ananias, is I want you to, to find the most dangerous person you can think of. <laughs> the one that you know wants to throw you in prison and may want to end your life. And I want you to go and pray for him. And so Ananias responds by saying, mm, time out. <laughs> Are you sure about this? Like, I know this Saul guy. I know what he's about. He hesitates. And we shouldn't be too hard on Ananias because I think this is a perfectly human response. I mean, if we knew that there was somebody out there that had it in for us, that was hunting us down in particular, and then God said, I want you to go to the house where they're staying and introduce yourself, we might hesitate as well. This is what Ananias says. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He says, I, I, I really don't want to do this. But God insists, and I think the Lord here does something. And he moves Ananias' direction a little bit. He understands the hesitation, and he reveals some of the bigger picture. Because again, God has this bigger picture. Our perspective is so limited, and often we don't get to see from God's point of view. But he does explain to Ananias a bit more. The Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake, for my name. So what's fairly interesting and ironic here is that the call of Saul that we first experience is not God telling Saul what he should do, but God telling another disciple, this is why I have chosen him. This is the call that I have placed on the life of this man. This is the big picture. Saul is going to go to the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And I'm very excited about the next few weeks because we're going to map out some of these missionary journeys of Paul. And we're going to find that he goes into the synagogues of these communities where he finds the children of Israel and proclaims to them, proclaims to them the good news of Jesus. And then he also goes to places like Athens and goes to a, a location where there's debates of philosophy for the Greeks and the Gentiles. And he proclaims to them the good news of Jesus. And then he goes to the Roman governor and even all the way to the emperor and is brought before them on trial and proclaims to the kings of this world the good news of Jesus. This commission that, that God has given Saul in Acts 9 is lived out in the remainder of the book in great and specific detail. 
And yet Saul will also suffer for the sake of Christ. His journeys also include many hardships like stoning, imprisonment, being shipwrecked, being marooned, and many other difficult travels um, and travails along the way. All of this commission and promise of God comes true, and we will explore this in better detail together. And so Ananias, who is a disciple of Jesus, is willing and open to do what God says, appreciates this perspective. He's convinced and goes to obey God's command. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And I love the actions of Ananias, someone who had, again, rightfully, understandably, this hesitation. He is so convinced about what God says was true that when he goes and sees Saul, this former enemy of his, he lays his hands on him. And what does he call him? What's the first thing he says to Saul? He calls him brother. Brother Saul, you, I believe God has transformed your life. I believe the call of God in your life. And as we find out just later on in Acts, it takes years for the disciples of Jesus Christ to be fully convinced that Saul is truly made new. And here we have Ananias call him brother right away. And he helps him regain his physical sight by praying for him to the point where scales fall from the eyes of Saul. And he baptizes Saul and it helps in the usher in the Holy Spirit, just as so many others have experienced when they came to faith in Christ in this book. Saul now is truly a new creation. God has done a great transforming work in his life. So what? That's a good question. So what? This is a story of someone who had a unique call in God thousands of years ago. I've never seen a light from heaven shine and flash around me. What does this story matter to me? Why should it make any difference in my life? It's a great question. And I have three things that I think stand out to me as why this is an impactful story for us to learn from today. And the first lesson is simply this. Jesus transforms lives. I mean, that's, that's it. That's the main idea. That's the big picture. That's the, the, the spirit and the heart of this entire lesson. Jesus transforms lives. And when we see Saul and his story, this is one of the more drastic changes that any story could ever tell. I mean, you had somebody that was bent and determined and fully committed to persecuting Jesus. He was actively hostile towards him. And then something happens on this road, and it didn't just change Saul's mind. He didn't just give up. He didn't just return back to Jerusalem. He didn't just let things lie. He turned around so completely that he took all of this zealous energy, and then he pursued Jesus for the rest of his life. He was an advocate, a missionary, a preacher, a proclaimer, a model of what it means to be transformed by the good news. Is there any other story of such a drastic change of heart and mind? I don't think that there is. In a way, Saul died that day, and he was reborn as Paul. There's a few details of the story that I think make this really stick for us. I mean, Saul was struck blind, and he stayed blind for three days, three whole days. That's an important number. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. I think this three days of blindness 
and I'm eating nothing for, for Saul mirrored the three days that Jesus stayed in the grave. And then on that third day, when the Holy Spirit entered his life and he saw again, that mirrors and symbolizes a spiritual resurrection. He truly died and then was reborn as something new. And so when we read through the letters of Paul in the New Testament, we'll come across passages like Romans 6, verses 3 to 4. And we need to remember and to realize that this was not just an idea or theology or a good piece of advice that, that Paul gives to the Roman church. This is his life. This is his story. He lived this out. Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Don't you know that you have died with Christ? You have died to your old self. You have been reborn. You've been made new. The old has passed away. You share in his resurrection too. Jesus transforms lives. And you'll see this theme all throughout the letters that Saul and Paul writes because it is part of his story. The miracle of transformation is only found in Jesus. My question to you today is, has Jesus made you new? Has he made you new? Another way of putting this is to proclaim that Jesus makes the blind to see. He makes the blind to see. One of the things I really appreciated about my study, it's a fairly well-known story to me. We had all the Sunday school teachers up here, and you may think back to your Sunday school days, and you'll remember you talked about Saul's conversion. You've talked about and heard this road to Damascus story. And so have I. It's very familiar. But one detail that jumped out to me was how important the blindness and sight is in this story. Blindness and sight play a huge role. I mean, Saul gets to see Jesus, a light shone around him. And we find evidence from the letters that he writes that he says, I truly saw Jesus that day. In his glory, in his splendor, in his holiness, he truly sees for the first time. And after that, then his physical sight is taken from him and he is blind for three days until Ananias prays for him and he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he regains his physical sight. In other words, on the road to Damascus, Saul has been blind to the truth about Jesus for his entire life, symbolized by losing his sight. And then now through this encounter with Jesus and through the role of the Holy Spirit, now for the first time in his entire life, Saul can truly see, not just physically, but spiritually. He was blind, but now he can see. He was lost and found, blind and can see. And Scripture has a number of stories of spiritual blindness and God opening eyes. Probably my favorite, one of my favorite stories in all of, of the Bible is Numbers 22, the story of Balaam and his donkey, where Balaam is on this journey, and, and then there's an angel of the Lord standing in the way. And his donkey can see the angel, but Balaam can't. So, of course, he gets very upset at his donkey until his donkey speaks to him. This is a crazy story. In Numbers 22, you can look it up. And then Balaam doesn't recognize what's going on until God opens his eyes. And then he can see, not just with his physical sight, but what is truly happening in that moment. A similar way, we have the story of Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings chapter 6. And they wake up one day in a city that's surrounded by an enemy army. And his servant goes up to the ramparts with Elisha, and he's like, what are we going to do? 
And Elisha says, calm down. And then the servant's eyes are opened. And what is surrounding this enemy army is a greater spiritual army of horses and chariots of fire. The Lord opened the eyes of the servant to truly see what was real in that moment. And then later on in the New Testament, Jesus himself declares to be the light of the world in John 9 before healing a man born blind. He's not just able to physically, he can see who Jesus really is. God is at work opening people's eyes, not to just what can be seen and touched and felt in this world, but what is spiritually, truly real around us. In what ways are we spiritually blind? That could still be a challenge today. It could be the blindness of disbelief, just like Saul. On the road to Damascus, he had his mind made up. He knew what truth was. He knew what was real. And he was not willing or open to seeing anything different until God opened his eyes. And perhaps you're here this morning or you're watching this sermon after the fact or on the live stream and you're somebody, he's like, I'm, I'm here because I need to be. I'm just, I don't want anything to do with this. I do not believe the claims of Jesus and you are spiritually blind just as Saul was. Or it could be different. You could have this spiritual blindness, what I would say, of busyness where you're open to Jesus and to understanding who he is and what might be really happening around you, but you don't have time to figure that out. Whether it's throwing yourself into your work or your family and chauffeuring your kids around or, or, or whether it is through, through all the different busyness of things we could be involved with at church, whatever the case may be, the hectic style of your life has given you blinders to what is really going on around you. Or maybe also like Saul, you have the blindness of religion and legalism and you come to church every Sunday morning because that's what you're supposed to do. And you say all the right things, and you sing all the songs, and you listen to all of the sermons mostly when you're not daydreaming about all the football that's happening afterwards. And you do all the right actions so you can fit the mold, but there's nothing about relationship. You're not looking. You're not seeing. You're just going through the motions and are still spiritually blind. Maybe it's the blindness of skepticism. It could be a student that's grown up in the church and your parents have taught you this way, and you've heard the stories this way, and you've listened to the sermons this way, but you're not quite sure yet. You're not opposed to it, but you just, you're skeptical. You don't know if it adds up. I mean, all of this has just been given to you and told to you, and you need to make your faith your own. Are you ready to truly see who Jesus is? And for all of us, this ever-present threat of the spiritual blindness of comfort and luxury, where we get so wrapped up in the things that we can touch and feel, and all the comforts and luxuries that this life affords us, that we just trick ourselves into thinking, oh, I have everything that I need. We, we gloss over those gaps in our life and our eternal life that that can only be filled by Jesus. We just quit looking because we're all right. Things are going great. I have good health. My family has good health. I have everything that I need, spiritually blind. But the beauty of Scripture. And I think one of the things we can take from this story is that there is an invitation that we can all approach Jesus and ask him to open up our eyes. Spiritual blindness is not his doing, it's our doing. We have a Lord, we have a God, we have a Savior who wants to reveal what is true to you, the truth of who he is. Not only to, to, to satisfy some of the, the spiritual questions you may have in your life, but to extend this to others, to see with the eyes of Jesus so that you see people around you for who Jesus sees them to be, not for your own perspective. 
You can receive the spiritual sight to trust that there is more going on around us than meets the eye. What is truly real? What is really happening in this moment? And I mean, for Saul, he certainly had a crazy eye-opening experience. His backstory was compelling. He was a prominent religious leader and a religious zealot. But the transformation was, was undeniable. It was a miracle that other people witnessed. He was struck blind by Jesus. So there was multiple visions that brought disciples together. This was God's work and God's work alone. What an incredible story. It makes for a great testimony, a great elevator testimony. For those of you who have gone through any of the um, evangelism training we've done here at Stony Brook, you'll know we've talked about uh, putting together an elevator testimony. Uh, one that uh, you can share your story in 30 seconds or less, like if you're on an elevator ride. Great place to talk about Jesus to get a captive audience, right? Make everybody really uncomfortable for a while. But can you, can you talk about your story in 30 seconds or less? Of course you can. And we talk about an elevator testimony where you choose two describing words and then the experience or change of Jesus and then two other describing words. So as I used to be this way and that way, but then I met Jesus and now I am this way and that way. I mean, and Saul would have a wonderful elevator testimony. Ah, my name is Saul. I used to be legalistic and angry, but then I met Jesus understatement, right? Then I met Jesus and now I am saved by grace and full of peace, right? That's Saul's story. And it's, it's crazy. It's spectacular. And we can almost idolize those types of stories. I still remember as a student at Providence College, getting ready to go on tour for three weeks, part of a worship team. We're going to tour to the East Coast and back. And we needed to prepare our testimonies because at each of these stops where we'd lead worship, we'd have a student share their story. And there were some really cool stories in our group. People had done all this crazy stuff and then met Jesus and now they're so committed. And then I was like, I got saved in my dining room when I was four. <laughs> I mean, my elevator testimony is like, I used to be not in kindergarten and three. And then I met Jesus. Like, it just didn't seem like there was much of a story. Like, how, how is that compelling for people? Is that really a testimony that people want to hear? Well, the beautiful thing is, and the truth is, the last lesson I think we learn is, is, is important. Your story matters. Not just Saul's story. Not just those other stories that we'd like to, to parade up here and say, wow, that was really crazy. No, your story matters. It's not about being far away from God first. I had someone come beside me when I was, was talking about this. I said, I don't know why anyone wants to hear my story. And he says, you have an amazing testimony. Your testimony is of God's faithfulness, of how he's been beside you, of how he's kept you close, of how he's drawn you through your entire life. Of course, that's something that people want to hear. Of course, it's a story that matters. The same is true for you. It's about God's faithfulness, the lessons you've learned, the bumps along the way, the valleys, the mountains, the way that Jesus has proved himself to be true. It's your story. It's undeniable, and it makes a difference. And have you written your story down? Have you taken the time to, to put pen to paper or typed it in, or better yet, typed it into your phone? Have you put your story down? I love it when we have baptisms and membership here at Stony Brook because we get to hear some of these stories of the power of God and his faithfulness, his love, his mercy, and his forgiveness. And we should not wait just for those moments to talk about these things that matter so much. These elevator testimonies are incredibly easy. It doesn't take very long. And so I want to challenge you whether you do it now or whether you do it when you get home or whether you do it before next Sunday, whatever the case may be, take some time on the back of your bulletin in your notebook, 
on your phone, whatever the case may be, write down your elevator testimony. Mine goes something like this. My name is Andrew, and I, I struggle with being anxious and afraid. But through the transforming power of Jesus in my life, I am confident and full of peace. So for some of you, it could be a before and after. For some of you, it could be like when I'm not trusting Jesus and when I am and his power and influence in my life. But it only takes four describing words to tell a story that could change somebody's life forever because your story matters. It points to the transforming power of Jesus. Saul would go on to share his testimony in Scripture at least three more times. Because when he was sharing the good news of Jesus, he knew it wasn't just a logic or reasoning or head argument. He knew the power of story in pointing to the truth of who Jesus is. His story matters, and yours does too. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we recognize that you are, that you are holy. We recognize that when you appeared to Saul, you did so in power and in glory as the Messiah, as the Son of God. Father, sometimes we look at these stories all throughout the book of Acts, <laughs> things that happen that we just don't always see anymore. But God, you are still full of that glory and honor, and you are still transforming lives today, and you've done it in our midst. And God, I pray that we would, that we would just ask you to open our eyes so that we can see what's really real so that we can see you and others with the eyes that you give us, not limited to our own perspective. God, I pray that, that you would transform our lives, that we would look and say, I used to be one way, but now, thanks to you, I am another. And God, I pray that when we recognize this transformation, that we would not keep it to ourselves, but that we would use each and every one of us, our stories, to point back to you. Amen.